You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Carrie Beaton from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, welcoming you to another marvelous episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. And I am joined here today by Dr. Abby Eplin from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. I just saw you trying to give a thumbs up there, Abby. (laughs) A cross between a wave and a thumbs up. (laughs) And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello, everyone. All right. So Valentine's Day is coming up. What are your best memories from Valentine's Day in the past? Abby, do you have one? Well, I don't have a great one. You probably have a better story than I do, but I really look forward to my dark chocolate heart box every Valentine's Day. We have this, I think it's a chain called Chocolat. You guys may have those too, but they have these molded heart Valentine boxes with dark chocolate, and then you get all these other chocolates inside. So I kind of look forward every year to Valentine's Day because I know that box is coming. So my husband better not forget it this year. (laughs) Box itself is chocolate. The box itself is chocolate and you can, you can get either dark chocolate or milk chocolate. That's my kind of environmental sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't waste any packaging. You just eat it, you know? That's very cool. That's very cool. What about you, Susan? I think you must have an interesting memory because I think you came up with this topic. So d- do tell. So I actually got engaged on Valentine's ah. Day. So when my husband and I were um, seniors in college, um, we had been dating for two, two and a half years. And, um, I, we went to Texas A&M and Texas A&M, um, in front of our academic building, which is one of the historic buildings. There's a tree called the century tree, which is obviously over a hundred years old. And, um, my husband was in the Corps of Cadets and he sent me on this, like, um, kind of scavenger hunt thinking that, I was bringing one of our friends who we knew were getting engaged to the century tree. And it was actually her bringing me to the century ah, tree, but I didn't know that. And reverse psychology. Whole, it was some reverse <laughs> psychology. And we had the whole saber arch thing and things like that. And the neat what's, thing What's was, a saber arch? So like where the cadets have their swords, oh, swords. and like you oh. walk under the swords and that kind of thing. Were you dressed for the occasion? Did you have to be dressed up for that? Or I actually was, you know, funny thing, you should mention that because I was like, I was dressed up for the occasion, but my, but Brooke, my husband, then boyfriend, um, was like, you know, dress nice, but you don't want to overdress Kelly and, you know, things like this. And so, you know, you're, you're saying that you're, you know, 20 something girl. And you're like, okay, trying to get like the appropriate level of not overdressed, but not underdressed. And so, but it ended up being beautiful and amazing. And neat thing was his parents actually got engaged on Valentine's day as well. And um, he had never told me that. And so it was pretty cool. And our parents were all there and he had like arranged for our friends. And so it was, it was, it was a neat thing. So was this like during the middle of the day or at night, or, I mean, it sounds like it was like a whole big production. It was a whole big production. It actually happened. Valentine's day that year, um, happened on a weekend. 
And um, it was actually funny because I called my parents earlier in the day and we, uh, my parents live like two and a half hours away. And I called them, this was back in the day before everybody had like a cell phone on them all the time. I called them as they were literally walking out of the house to drive (laughs) from New Braunfels to College Station. And so my mom was like, trying to not like rush me as I was calling them to wish them happy Valentine's day, but like they're trying to leave and trying not to be suspicious Aww. and everything like that. So it was, it was super memory. sweet. It is a good memory. What about you, Carrie? So my husband and I, the first couple of years when we were dating, when we were together, um, I had a really stellar reputation for trying to put together a wonderful romantic Valentine's day and failing miserably. And so the first, um, the first Valentine's day that I can think of that we were together, we were med students at the time. So read no money, no anything. (laughs) Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this right. So I put him in my car and I said, okay, this is a surprise. You have to wear a blindfold. So put him in the, you know, put him in the blindfold, drove him all around our neighborhood, did lots of twists and turns. So he would have no idea because this is a neighborhood close to where he grew up. So he was really familiar with it. And so had gone to get, um, had ordered some, some dinner, like a steak dinner and baked potatoes and all that stuff from a nice place. And had it in tucked in my car. So I went and grabbed that quickly, got him, drove him around blindfolded, and then drove him back to his own apartment and said, okay, let me go just check and see if everything is ready. And and then my plan was, I'm going to take all this food upstairs, set it out on a picnic on his um, floor and light some candles and everything's going to be great. So I'm running at top speed across the gravel in the front of his apartment complex the food goes flying. (laughs) And the opposite potato managed to stay in their respective uh, containers, but all the other stuff went flying. So I'm like, oh crap. So I like pick it up, throw it back into the box. And of course I have no money and no backup plan. Um, And so, you know, throw it back in, run upstairs. Well, this took me longer than I anticipated. So by the time I get downstairs and I open up and I'm like, running. And I think like, okay, this took me five minutes. I am so fast. I go to open the car, you know, was excited, threw it open. He's still blindfolded, having been sitting there in absolute silence for (laughs) probably 15 minutes or so. I threw open the door. He screamed as as a person could scream because it was horror movie kind of (laughs) quiet. And then we went upstairs and I gave him the, uh, the non-rockified uh, dinner. <laughs> and, and that Valentine's Day was followed by many other Valentine's Days where I set the smoke alarm off. I totally torched dinner. This is otherwise being really a, a pretty decent cook. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we have had many adventures over the years. It's kind of simmered out. But our anniversaries, our Valentine's Days, birthdays, like I pretty much all the romantic occasions... I torched for the first at least three years that we were together. So obviously your cooking wasn't your only redeeming quality, I guess, Carrie, right? Yeah, I, it couldn't have been because the first <laughs> that man dinner, I, we still, we were talking the other night, this is now 16 years ago, we were talking about how those pork chops were uh, irredeemable. Aww. So yeah, so okay. All right, Susan, what questions do you have for us today? 
Okay. So our question is, dear doctors, the podcast has been a godsend during my two IVF cycles this year. I'm about to have my first FET in a few in a couple of weeks and was wondering if there are different FET protocols and how you decide what to use for which patient. In other words, are they as customizable as IVF protocols? Thank you. That's a really good question. It is a good one. All right. Abby, what do you think? You know, there are as many FET protocols probably as there are doctors that do this. Um, you know, it amazes me you know, in our group, we do certain things certain ways. And there's different, little different tweaks between different physicians and different go-to protocols if a patient doesn't have a good lining. And, but I think as our group, we sort of stay fairly, fairly consistent. But, you know, it's interesting in talking to the other doctors, you know, like you guys and the other doctors in our big ovation group, it is so amazing how people can just you know, they, they have different tweaks that they do that they think work. I think the challenging thing with a lot of things that we do in IVF and, and for FETs is that there's really no good randomized perspective studies. So it's really, truly hard to know if what you're doing makes a clinical difference or not. Now, we, we can use things like endometrial lining as an endpoint. So the thicker your lining, the better. But to answer the question, there are all kinds of different protocols um, that, that people can do um, when they're customizing treatment for an individual patient. What do you guys think? So I, I would agree. I, I would say that I kind of have a little bit of a stepwise approach. So I, I think of IVF protocols differently than the way I think of FET protocols. So IVF protocols, I more think of kind of age of patient, status of ovarian reserve, what is the status of the sperm, and those things kind of form, you know, how aggressive or not aggressive, how much medicine are we going to use? Um, you know, am I going to use antagonist or am I going to do an estrogen priming protocol? Those types of things. Whereas for an FET protocol, it, it, things are stratified on a different method. So I kind of have my kind of normal protocol that I do. Um, and, and I think this is what Abby's kind of saying. There's like, a bajillion of those different protocols. How do you do this? You know, do you use oral estrogen? Do you use vaginal estrogen? Do you, do you use um, some sort of stimulated protocol? Do you use transdermal estrogen? Do you use injectable progesterone or a combination of vaginal and injectable or just vaginal? You know, there's all kinds of, you know, permutations there. Um, and then, you know, I think about, you know, how many embryos somebody has and what their family goals are. You know, if I have somebody who has one or two embryos at the end of their IVF cycle that are chromosomally normal and they're wanting two children, you know, that may be somebody that I choose to do an ERA cycle beforehand to kind of maximize that cycle. What's an ERA cycle? So ERA, um, it stands for, thank you, Abby, um, it stands for <laughs> endometrial receptivity assay. And that is where essentially you do a practice embryo transfer cycle. And instead of the day of the embryo transfer, you doing the embryo transfer, you do a little biopsy of the lining of the uterus in the, in the office, um, doesn't require any anesthesia or anything like that. And, um, receptivity of the lining of the uterus is opened and closed by progesterone exposure. And we know that most people, how much most people need, but um, there's a certain percentage of people who about 20% that are going to need more or less than the average person. And this ERA test, it helps us determine that. So sometimes we'll do that beforehand. 
um, to help us figure out if we need to adjust that progesterone exposure. And then we also have what we call our steroid protocol. It's a combination of steroids and some antibiotics in addition to estrogen and progesterone that we do for people for a number of different reasons. Maybe they may have autoimmune disease. Maybe we've done embryo transfers and they haven't been successful and we're trying to you know, add something else into the mix. And so I would say the short answer is yes, there are lots of different protocols that can be tailored to your specific situation, but they're not necessarily the same thought process as what your IVF protocol is. What about you, Carrie? So I think that all of those things are true. Um, and, and probably the only thing that I would add is that I feel like it's a little bit easier to aim for perfection in a frozen embryo transfer cycle uh, because you've already got an embryo that's frozen and ready to go. So you don't have a time constraint. You've got the, I want to be pregnant yesterday constraint that pretty much all of our patients have. But if you see something that's not working, you can bail on that with really relatively minimal cost. You know, it's the cost of whatever the meds are and the frustration of everybody involved because you want it to work right the first time. But if something doesn't look good, then it really doesn't matter what protocol you use. You just say, all right, scrap it. We're going to go back and we're going to try something different. Well, and one thing too, I would want to emphasize is that there's no one size fits all. And if you take one physician, not everybody is going to do the same things exactly as we as an individual person does them. And so if your doctor doesn't do ERA biopsies or doesn't do injectable estrogen or something, it doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong. It just means that they do things differently. And so, um, so you know, I think the key is we really want to make sure the endometrial lining looks good. That's sort of one of the major endpoints when we're trying to transfer an embryo. And everything I think that we do in that process is to try and enhance endometrium and the endometrial lining and the implantation. Unfortunately, we just don't know a lot about implantation and what things have to be present in the uterus to make an embryo implant. Well, it's not necessarily that we don't know what's involved. It's that we don't have tests to determine what's happening in your specific body. So, you know, there, there's, I always tell patients that if we wrote a book about everything we know about fertility and we wrote a book about what we can actually test, that second book is probably about a half to a, quarter, a, half to a quarter as long um, because, you know, there trying to test things non-invasively is one of the major challenges that we face as reproductive endocrinologists, because obviously the last thing we would want to do is interrupt something beautiful from happening. Mm -hmm. All right. So some of that actually segues really nicely into our topic for today, which is looking at when do you get a second opinion? And I think we said said this on, on one of our prior podcasts of you put three physicians in a room, you're going to get four viewpoints. And so when, when should you as a patient go intentionally looking for one of those other viewpoints? And so what do you guys, what do you guys think when you have a patient who says, I want to go get a second opinion, or you find out that they come back having had a second opinion of, oh yeah, I talked to Dr. XYZ across town and they said, whatever it was they said, what do you guys think about that? So I think, I think there's a lot of value in second opinions. And I kind of tear this kind of conversation, whether you're thinking about second opinion from your, because some of our listeners may be at the point where they're still working with their OB-GYN. And then some of our listeners are working with the reproductive endocrinologist. So, um, you know, when you're working with your OB-GYN, I would say that, you know, if you've been doing something for three to six months and you haven't been successful, 
that's probably the time that going and seeking a second opinion from somebody who's a reproductive endocrinologist. So somebody who's specialty trained in fertility. So OB-GYNs have four years of training before they go out into practice. Reproductive endocrinologists have done those same four years, but then they've gone through an additional three years specific in infertility. Um, so it's probably times to, you know, say, kick it up a notch and um, maybe get a little bit more evaluation than what you may have had with your general OB-GYN um, and also just getting different perspectives. So um, that that's kind of the, the one tier I look at. And then when I look, think of, um, you know, somebody who's been going to a reproductive endocrinologist and then not, that's, that's a whole, that's way more complicated because <laughs> um, there's not necessarily that t- easy time frame. Um, but I think that second opinions can be very valuable. You may stick with your same doctor that you started with, you know, just because you go get a second opinion from somebody else. Don't ever think that your quote original doctor won't take you back or doesn't want to hear it. I mean, most of us like to hear other opinions and be like, Oh, here's a new perspective. You know, that's definitely, and, and doctors may agree. They may not agree. And, you know, it it may be one of those situations where there's going to be a gray zone in the middle. And unfortunately for you, a lot of the time it's going to come to a gut decision as to which doctor feels like they're going to be able to deliver the best care to you. What do you think, Abby? Well, I think sometimes if you've had some treatment and hadn't worked, it's natural to be frustrated and to feel like, you know, maybe this person just doesn't know what they're doing. And I think... Sometimes when people leave and get a second opinion, I think they get a better perspective and feel more, hopefully more confident in their doctor. I think there's so many things that we do not know about infertility. And in my past couple of decades in infertility, it amazes me how little we still know about implantation and pregnancy. And, you know, sometimes I'll get patients and I'll have done kind of a workup on them and then they'll try some things and they'll be like, well, okay, well now I'm ready. You can do those other tests on me. And I'll be like, well, there really are no other tests. (laughs) We've already done them all. And so I think that's really frustrating to patients because I can't tell them sometimes why they're not getting pregnant. And I think that can be really frustrating. So I think if you find that you're frustrated, I think it's good to seek out a second opinion because I think sometimes patients kind of just feel angry and they feel like there's something they're not telling, you know, someone's not telling them something. And I think you kind of get a better perspective and you realize that maybe, you know, hopefully that your doctor is doing the right treatment for you. I think sometimes too, I will have to admit, and I think you guys are probably in the same boat, you know, sometimes I'll know something that maybe I don't really feel comfortable professionally saying to a patient. Like if I know, for example, Dr. X over there orders million dollar workups and gets a bunch of tests that I think, in my opinion, are not worthwhile tests. And, you know, you kind of wonder, is there some other incentive other than patient care? And so if you find that you're spending a lot of money at the practice or the doctor's having you come back for a bunch of tests and you kind of wonder if they're really necessary, that's when I would seek out a second opinion and just uh, make sure that you're really getting the care that, that you deserve to get. I would say that your physician should be able to explain and should be pretty comfortable explaining why they're ordering what they're ordering because and be able to back it up with either data or be able to very clearly say, look, we don't have this data, or this is the data that exists, and this is why I trust it, or this is why I don't trust it. 
Because granted, there's there's a lot of tests that go into the basic fertility evaluation. So I don't want our listeners to think of, oh my goodness, we're doing a lot of tests. These aren't all necessary. But like Carrie's, Carrie's getting to that they, like there should be an explanation behind it. And your doctor should be able to explain why we're doing what. So, you know, for example, I was mentioning earlier that, you know, one time somebody called me and said, okay, my patient's going through IVF. Why are you ordering all these infectious disease tests? This doesn't make sense. Well, that's kind of the standard of care. We have to know before we do IVF, first of all, that you and your husband are both healthy. And when we create embryos, if you or your husband have something like hepatitis, we need to know that because those embryos need to be isolated in a different container away from the other embryos. So sometimes people don't really understand why we need to do infectious disease testing. And, you know, that's a lot of different tests when you're talking about HIV and hepatitis and CMV and some other things that we do. Um, but, you know, we should be able to tell you why we're ordering the tests that we are. Um, and I think too, the other thing that I meant to mention as well, it's always good, even when you're seeing a doctor for the first time, I think it's great to do your own research on the internet, but just remember, just like Amazon reviews, those reviews can be kind of altered, <laughs> you know, and so don't necessarily read a review online and think that the doctor that you're going to see is going to be really good or really bad because those reviews can be tweaked a lot. I think it's best if you can find a physician that you trust to get their input um, and, and I think, you know, a word of mouth from another person, a friend of yours that's seen that doctor, because sometimes, you know, ads can be really glossy and really pretty and just make that person out to be, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. And in reality, they, you know, they may not live up to their hype. So I would try and go with word of mouth as much as you can, if you can, when you're getting, you know, refer, or when you're seeing a doctor for the first time, or even for the second time for that matter. <laughs> Yeah, and we definitely, um, we really don't, any any doc who's good, who kind of understands the science and is, is willing to move forward with it is not going to be offended by you wanting to get a second opinion. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, okay, go for it. You know, they may, some of them may steer you, uh, you know, I would recommend talking to this person or this person, you know, um, because because I've seen how they practice and I trust them. Um, and that's, that's one way to get a second opinion, you know, and, and granted, a lot of us are not going to send you to the person, you know, that we think, oh, they're a total crackpot. Um, (laughs) but if someone asks me and they say, okay, I I really want to get a second opinion. Who do you recommend from? I'll tell them who, who I would send them to see because they're the people that I trust. And, and there's a layer of the patient just having to trust me and that I'm not a total crook, but if they think I'm a total crook, they need to be going anyway. Um, because that's one thing that I tell everybody is that you, you got to trust me because if you don't trust me, then we don't have a good relationship. And if I call someone with bad news, if you're not pregnant or you only have one embryo or whatever it may be, I need that trust for them to know that I have done absolutely everything that I can. And so sometimes second opinions are useful just because you walk into somebody else's office and you go, Oh, I didn't realize, I didn't realize that I really did like it where I I first was, or, or I didn't realize that this is what it could be. And this is a better suit for me. Kind of on that same layer of trust that Carrie was just talking about, you know, we, whether we're patients or doctors, there are going to be some people that we do mesh well better <laughs> with some people than others. I mean, we're, we're all humans. And so, you know, for, I always say that fertility is a journey. 
Okay. It is, is not a one-stop shop. Unfortunately, it is, it is something that we are going to walk through together. And so if you don't have a good connection and that's going to vary from person to person, you know, some people need somebody who's really touchy feely. Some people need somebody who's more transactional and matter of fact, some people need somebody who can mm-hmm. kind of coat things a little bit better. Some people like it to be, you know, given to them straight, those are all things that quite honestly, until you're in with your doctor, you're not going to necessarily know that. Sometimes you can get some of that information from reviews, but um, not always. Um, but on that personal level, you know, you're going to know what you need. And if who you're visiting with isn't matching those needs, that maybe sometimes finding another clinic or another doctor, even within the same clinic, um, might make that journey better for you as well as for your your team because it, it it is it is a team sport. Very much true. Very much true. Is there anything that you guys would say you should avoid when you're looking for a second opinion? Like if you if you've gone to see your primary you know fertility specialist or uh, or talking to your OBGYN and Susan when you were saying OBGYN it made me think of when I was in residency I switched from from hearing it's hearing it being called OBGYN which is where how I grew up to OBGYN and now every time I think of OBGYN I think like oh that's a great new cocktail um, <laughs> I, just, I just say OBGYN I don't I just say that I just spell the word letters out I don't say either uh-huh. <laughs> I guess it's all where you trained, right? <laughs> it is all, all, all medicine is local. It's like all politics are local. All medicine is local. Um, but, but what things do you need to look out for? Whether you're going from one REI to another, from an ob to a specialist from, or, or just talking with your local fertility Facebook group to, you know, do I need to go see, see somebody with medical letters behind their, their name? What are things to look at to avoid, to be kind of aware of? Bigger, fancy, glitzy, famous is not necessarily better. So, you know, when you're on the airplane and you're flipping through the, <laughs> what, I was just what used to that. be on airplanes and you see those like, the, those like doctors in the middle of the magazine and they look like they're like the world's end, you know, um, they have great photographers, <laughs> You know, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have great qualifications. And, you know, there are, you know, there are certain clinics out there that are renowned for being really good at blank. Um, In my experience, um, if it sounds too good to be true, it may be. (laughs) And so take, take everything with a grain of salt. You know, there are, there are clinics that do cherry pick patients that don't allow certain patients with like diminished ovarian reserve or things like that to go through different protocols. And so they're not kind of in those fantastic numbers. Um, like I said, um, uh, unfortunately, you know, and there's some clinics that maybe their SART statistics or whatever may not look quite as good, but maybe they let patients come in who just want to have a chance. And there's a lot of people out there who just want to have that chance. Um, so that's kind of my, yet to follow up on that, Susan, our clinic and you're right. Some people will say, unless you're less than 35 and you have a certain AMH, we're not going to let you go through IVF. And that's well and good because it makes your stats look really good. But we have the philosophy that everybody deserves a chance to try and get pregnant because 
every now and then you'll predict that somebody won't do very well and they do great and they get pregnant and they would have been patients that probably most, a lot of clinics would not have let go through. And so I had a patient, I don't know, it was probably six months ago. So, well, you know, Dr. Evelyn, I looked at your start numbers and they looked really good, but why do you have so many cycle cancellations? And I said, well, because we allow everybody to go through and some people within a few days of stimulation just don't make it and we have to cancel their cycle if their egg number is really low, but we still give them the opportunity to go through and do IVF. And so you have to be careful, like Susan said, to when you look specifically at statistics, because there's can be there can be lots of things that are hidden in those statistics that you may not quite understand. And there's sometimes there's a reason why if the statistics look too good to be true, they might be. <laughs> what what are what are your um, kind of red flags, Carrie? Um, I mean, I, I worry about the people who push their success rates a ton because it's like you said, those statistics are really easy to manipulate and things that apply really on a great level when you've got an entire football stadium worth of people don't apply when you're talking about one human being, because for one human being, that outcome is 0% or a hundred percent. There's no such thing as being 62.5% pregnant. <laughs> you, are, you are or you are not. Um, and and paying attention to to the bigger picture and really knowing what you're looking for. Like the patients who come in to our practice when they're talking to our schedulers and they and, and part of this is our schedulers are are good at looking for this, but able to kind of figure out, okay, who needs the cold hard numbers person? Who needs the the doc who's gonna hold their hand, who needs whatever? And so when when you can identify what your needs are, like if you have a really screwball case, you may want someone who is totally different than who you were at before in whatever direction that goes. And so kind of be open-minded of, all right, you know, let's, let's see, see what happens next and what makes the most sense. One last thing, Carrie, that I was thinking of as you were speaking, um, you know, I think the other thing, and it's not always that, you know, not all clinics that haven't been around for very long are bad, but I think if you go to a clinic that's been there for a long time, and I think too, if you sort of look at the employees and you see them over and over again, and the employees have been there for a long time, that kind of tells you something about the practice. If, you know, if, you know, practices were doing things that were maybe not ethically on the up and up, or, you know, a lot of people would probably feel uncomfortable with that and wouldn't want to stay with that practice. But if there's a lot of longevity in the employees, I think that's another sign that it's a good place to work and that everybody's kind of on the same team and that, you know, probably will be a good place for patients. Mm -hmm. Excellence is a practice and, and something that you, if you make the effort to be on point every single day and you've been around for 10, 20, 30 years, um, you're unlikely to just drop that willy-nilly. You know, everybody mm-hmm. makes mistakes and that is fine. But if if it is a random one here, one there, then and you are otherwise in a practice that's been around for a good long time, you know, it's it's a another helpful way to say, all right, you know, maybe these guys are, are worth getting the next opinion from. So absolutely. Good stuff. All right. So to our audience. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more and be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We would absolutely love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensor.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions. I always mess up that word. (laughs) (laughs) We know what you're going to say. (laughs) That you may have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. The more embarrassing, the better. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye.